It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Big hour to close out the week. We have uh, Congressman Michael Wall to be with us, weighing in shortly. Brian Rotella on this, uh, the passage, and it looks like it's here to stay. Obamacare yesterday, Supreme Court doesn't touch it. And Lee Habib, the executive producer of The Streets Where My Father, uh, a story of hopelessness and redemption. Of course, Father's Day, a couple of days, or just on our doorstep. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. I was surprised to hear you come out and endorse Senator Manchin's legislation. Tell me about that. I am endorsing the fact that we now have a list of priorities and that Joe Manchin is at the table and he's part of the conversation. It's an important step forward as we try to protect the freedom to vote. Scary. Stacey Abrams happy with Joe Manchin's adjustment to H.R. 1. Is Joe about to break? Yes, Joe Manchin has put forward changes to H.R. 1, the left-wing revamp of uh, the voting system, and now he might be ready to join his party on the legislation. However, it passes only if the filibuster law changes. Is Manchin ready to do that? Number two. One of the greatest things that President Trump did for this country was shutting down asylum fraud categorically. What Merrick Garland has done here is extreme. And it means there will be more fraud than you can possibly imagine because there's no way to disprove a claim of being afraid of violence. Uh, They have no answers. And that was so true by Stephen Miller. It's scary. Some of the changes going on under the wire with immigration. Biden, who has no answers for the relentless raid on our southern border and new rules will only make things worse. While they think they're gaining because they think the illegals will vote for them. I have a sense it could be the exact opposite. Number one. The Biden administration said don't expect much from the president's meeting with Russia's Vladimir Putin, and many say not much is exactly what the president got. Right, you would think. Hard to tell. That's how I feel about Vladimir Putin's review of the hours spent with President Biden as he compliments his attention to detail and his sharpness. I can't tell if he's being sarcastic or sincere. We'll give you the latest review from stateside right here. Joining me right now is Congressman Michael Waltz, House Armed Services Committee, Green Beret. Served also as an advisor to uh, Dick Cheney when he was vice president. Congressman, welcome back. Hey, good to be with you, Brian. So uh, a couple of things. Are, are you surprised if Vladimir Putin says is uh, making all these compliments to Joe Biden, how attention, the attention to detail he had, and you can't put anything over on him, his years of experience certainly paying off? Yeah, and, and that, you know, he didn't. It was understandable if he was referring to his notes, <laughs> if Biden was constantly referring to his notes as well, um, which didn't uh, which didn't surprise me. No, it doesn't surprise me at all, Brian, uh, because this is the game that this is the game that Putin plays. Uh, he, he's done the same thing uh, in the past. Uh, but pay attention to what he's doing. First of all, th- this summit shouldn't have happened at all. I mean, we're on the wake of the solar winds hack which by most estimates will cost the government and private industry over $100 billion at least uh, to get out of. Uh, We're in the wake of two attacks on our critical infrastructure, our food supply and our gas supply, massing thousands of troops on the Ukrainian border, rolling out new nuclear weapons, rearming uh, 
uh, the Arctic and holding, by the way, not one but two former uh, veterans, Americans, uh, hostage. And we reward him with an international stage uh, to, to kind of, you know, basically look like he's on the same level with the United States, look powerful back home. Uh, and, and and play his same old games rather than reestablishing deterrence, flicking the lights in the Kremlin, so to speak, with our own cyber capabilities. He hands Putin a list of uh, of 16 industries and companies to stay away from and sectors to stay away from. Could you imagine being number 17 and 18? Uh, it's incredible. List, Brian, I mean, it, it was just it, it, it's one thing to get nothing done. It's another thing to actually move us backwards. Uh, and I think that's a, exactly what happened because Putin always takes advantage of weakness. Remember, he invaded Crimea just two months after having the world stage with the Sochi Olympics. He started marching across Ukraine because he saw that Obama and Biden were only going to provide uh, blankets uh, and, and MREs. Right. He will always take advantage of weakness. And I think that's what he smells right now in the White House. So what he said is Biden is a professional and one should work very attentively with him to avoid missing any detail. I can say with certainty that he never misses a single detail. That was absolutely obvious to me. He is fully in the know. He looked into his notes from time to time. But we're all doing this. The image of President Biden portrayed by our and even by the American media has nothing to do with the reality. So I don't know if his tongue's in cheek because of what he's saying, because remember when he said, I wish him good health, and I mean that, good health. Uh, he went on to say this right. about Jen Psaki. His press, secretary, his press secretary is young, educated, and a pretty woman. She is mixing things up all the time. This is not because she is not enough educated or has a bad memory. Simply, you know, when people think that some things are secondary, they don't really fix their attention on this. The Americans believe that nothing is more important than themselves. This is their style. So I'm not sure. I think he was trying to put her down. I'm not sure. I guess Jen Psaki was asserting herself in the meeting. But what happens from here? Well, you know, exactly. What happens from here is uh, Russia completes the Nord Stream pipeline, which will completely isolate Ukraine, Poland, and Eastern Europe, which, by the way, of our NATO allies are most aligned with the United States. So we just act uh, over all of them. By the way, uh, Biden's own energy secretary testified before me in committee that she disagreed with lifting sanctions on Nord Stream. She wasn't at the table. She wasn't consulted and, oh, by the way, it moves the dirtiest form of gas in the world. So she disagreed uh, with it from a climate change standpoint as well. Gee, I thought that was why they shut down the, the Keystone pipeline. So um, you know, Putin is going to continue to do what Putin does. He's going to continue to deploy his nuclear arsenal that's completely modernized while Biden is trying to cut our defense budget. I really think people need to pay attention to the Arctic. Uh, Russia is trying to do in the Arctic with the new oil and gas discoveries as the as the ice retreats, what uh, China has done in the South China Sea, and just stake its uh, terrain. It's modernized twelve uh, Cold War bases, and shipping is starting to is starting to move along. The, if you look at the map, out of northern Europe, along the northern part of Russia, down into Asia and into uh, the western United States rather than through the Suez Canal and across the Atlantic. Russia wants to dominate that shipping. Uh, so it's going to continue. It's going to continue its misinformation campaign. It's certainly going to continue allowing criminals to hack our infrastructure uh, and make millions off the backs of uh, American industry because what's the downside right now? What 
what retribution, what actions did Biden actually demonstrate he has the will uh, to undertake? Deterrence requires right. capability. We have that. But it also requires political will, and I'm not sure we have that. I think that's the, that's the measure uh, and what uh, Putin was seeking out. His national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, just weighed in on what would happen if the Russians keep up with his cyber attacks or other attacks. This was not about threats or ultimatums. It was about a statement of reality. If these attacks continue, the president will have no choice but to take responsive measures against Russia, including in cyber. Uh, and he said that clearly and definitively to President Putin. Uh, and he said it publicly as well. He's mincing no words on what he's prepared to do as we go forward. What are we prepared to do? I'm not sure. And that's what I thought that was going to happen behind the scenes. But I guess it didn't. Brian, here's the fundamental problem. You remember kind of the, the terrorism problem in the 90s under Clinton. They defined, they defined terrorism as a criminal problem. You had FBI agents running around the world trying to arrest terrorists and collect evidence rather than the military trying to take them out. It's the same problem right now in the cyber realm. We define these attacks as a criminal problem uh, and, and, you know, that falls under the judicial system. But all of our cyber capability, not boots on the ground, but our cyber capability – is sitting under the military. We need to define it what, which, under what it is, which is an attack, an attack by a foreign power, allowed by a foreign power, and respond with our military cyber capabilities, which are far more capable than what's at the FBI uh, or, or the Department of Homeland Security. And I don't see that coming from this White House at all. Well, a couple of things. When you look at what's happening in Afghanistan, I'm hearing from people in the military of better context than I'll ever have. They're really concerned about the way we're getting out. They see another Saigon where the people that helped us for 20 years are going to be sacrificed right. along with their families. We've made no provisions. We have made no provisions to leave contractors behind to help with air power or to maintain some of the aircraft we gave them or some of the facilities we're leaving them. So they're basically saying we're done. We wipe our hands because maybe they feel as though they have some political cover because Donald Trump started the withdrawal. Well, and, and remember, remember this, Brian, Biden in 1975, when he was a senator, didn't support uh, the evacuation of the South Vietnamese. Uh, and look at the vibrant uh, uh, Vietnamese-American community uh, that we have today. He didn't support it. Uh, right now, we have a situation where the Pentagon is saying we can do the evacuation. We can help these people. The governor of Guam said he's ready to go. Everybody says they're ready. Uh, all they're waiting on is a green light from Biden. And uh, I can't for the life of me. We've got Democrats pounding the table, senators pounding the table. The Afghans are, are begging uh, to, to not be abandoned. They are being hunted down by the Taliban as we speak. I get messages from them every day. It's heartbreaking. And from a strategic standpoint, you just had uh, uh, General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, say it's a medium probability that we may have to go back uh, within the next few years, that ISIS and al-Qaeda could come roaring back. Well, How? Who are we going to have to go back to? Yeah, we, we, we have going to have bases. Base. Pakistan we don't have any neighboring yeah. bases. Right. Yeah. I mean, everybody in the region has said not no, but hell no. Uh, and that's the big difference when Obama pulled us out of Iraq and what led to ISIS. We had Turkey, Israel, the Gulf states. We don't have anything around Afghanistan. And you have half the world's terrorist organizations still there. And our local allies will have been massacred. Uh, this is just as a horror movie unfolding. It is going to be a Saigon moment, I fear. And I hope he can step up and erase the past sins. But everybody, this is all coming from the White House. Everybody else says they're ready to go to help 
these people that stood with us, put not their lives on the line, their whole family's lives on the line uh, against the extremism for the last 20 years so that we would never have another 9-11. All right, a couple of things. Uh, just real quick, it, it passed the Senate because yeah. you had a uh, House because you had no choice, simple majority. But now in the Senate, there's HR1 and this infrastructure package that they're trying to try to do with simple reconciliation, which I don't think is possible. But Joe Manchin indicating in a call with no labels, which is a super PAC uh, that got out, here's the audio that shows Joe Manchin bending when it comes to the filibuster. Cut nine. That's one of many good, uh, good suggestions I've had. I looked back in 19, I think it was 73 when it went from 67 votes to 60 votes. And also what was happening, what made them think that it needed to change. So I'm open to looking at it. I'm just not open to getting rid of the, of the filibuster. That's all. And uh, right now, 60 is where I planted my flag. Uh, but I'm, uh, as long as they know that I'm going to protect this filibuster, we're looking at good solutions. So the question was, would you go down to 55? So only a 55 vote instead of 10 senators get five. Uh, he's under a lot of pressure. What do you think the Republicans' role is to take some of that pressure off, if they have one? Yeah, he's under, he is under a tremendous amount of pressure. The progressives are pounding uh, away on him. But the thing that gives me hope uh, is that uh, is, are the people of West Virginia. Uh, are the people that Joe Manchin are ultimately accountable to, uh, that voted overwhelmingly for President Trump, that do not buy into this progressive nonsense uh, that, that's flowing out of Washington right now. And, uh, you know, I hope he can keep his compass uh, to who his bosses are. And those are the those are the people of West Virginia. But right. but you're seeing them chip away. Uh, and and I, I pray holds the line. And, and I think Republicans need to find ways. Senator McConnell needs to find ways. Uh, to give him some wins. So I know you're in the National Guard still. It looks like some Florida National Guard police officer is going to go down and help out in Texas and Arizona. Would you go? Uh, oh, absolutely, I would go. Right now it's just police officers uh, and, and not the guard that I know of. It's, it's 12 different law enforcement agencies. Brian, I can't tell you how proud I am of Governor DeSantis, Governor Abbott, Governor uh, Ducey of, of Arizona uh, for, for stepping up to this crisis. And what what your listeners need to fully understand is these people, these migrants, 180,000 just in the last uh, month, aren't just staying in Texas and Arizona. They are being flown by Biden's Health and Human Services Department all over the country, and you don't even know about it. 3,000 of the children have already been flown to various sites uh, in Florida, and the pressure that they're putting on our school system, our health care, our infrastructure that's already not serving existing U.S. citizens in the way that it should right. is tremendous. And what has me so concerned is there's no end in sight. If when, does this, right. when does this stop? Uh, and, and thank God for our conservative governor stepping up. Yeah, Congressman Michael Waltz with us. Uh, Michael, I know WOKV listeners enjoy hearing what their local congressman is up to, and now they know, and so does the country. Congressman, thanks for joining us. All right. Uh, thank you, Brian. I'll keep up the fight. You got it. Uh, meanwhile, coming up next you, one 408 uh, do you think Joe Manchin will hold? Then Brian Rotella joined us, an attorney and founder of CEO and senior partner with Genco. He's going to weigh in, as the health care expert he is, on what it means for Obamacare that it got upheld again at the Supreme Court and so much more. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. 
Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com slash path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com slash path. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. I've been inviting, before that, I've been inviting the president and the vice president, and hopefully they can come down to the border. All we can do is uh, invite uh, the uh, the vice president, hopefully she'll come down on that. But we're ready to secure the border and work with them, and we need to deport people. The people that don't belong here should be deported. That, in support for you to know, that is a Democrat in Texas, Congressman Henry Cuellar. This brings me to my conclusion I believe with Democrats letting everybody in, 6,000 a day, over a million since they took office, they think, well, that's eventually going to be my is eventually going to be my voter. I don't think so, because the Hispanic community that's taking root here with this generation, they're very concerned about their history. They're concerned about family values. They're concerned about their security. The reason why so many of these uh, these districts flipped for Trump is he was providing those three things. Despite his crassness, his tweets, that thing was happening. And now the chaos that they're seeing, they know what party's responsible for because they know the trials and tribulations up close and personal from the people still living in the Central America uh, to the ones that want to come and the ones that snuck in. Meanwhile, it's unbelievable what the Biden administration is coming up with in terms of rules. Get this. The Department of Homeland Security on Tuesday announced they have expanded the Obama-era Central American Minors Program that allows children under 21 from the Northern Triangle countries, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, uh, pending asylum, to come in and reunite with family members. Cut one. Ralph Norman going at it. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. With the Homeland Security Secretary. I'm reclaiming my time. You made the statement that my question was unfair. I'm making the statement that your comments are just words and they're very unfair. I ask you a simple question, and I would like for you just to answer simply. Uh, is it, does it make sense for the leaders of the free world to go in, in, to, to talk to and see what's going on at the border? I am the Secretary of Homeland Security, and it is my responsibility um, 
to manage uh, the border at the direction of the president and the vice president, and I have visited the border on multiple occasions. The vice president served as the attorney general of a border state of California, and she is quite familiar uh, with the situation on the border. I but she's laughing her. That is Rob Norman. You understand how upset he is. He's a veteran, too. But keep in mind, uh, the vice president will not go down. It doesn't seem if they come down, I think it'll be a low-profile thing. Most of all, rather than go down, I just want to see them change policies to slow down things at the border because our Border Patrol are overwhelmed right now. They're working double and triple shift, doing two or three jobs. It can't keep happening like this. (laughs) Everybody's laughing. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. No member of the court said they'd strike the entire law down. It's really egregious, the demagoguing we saw on this case when everyone in that room, I think, knew that that was not like the likely result. Even people like Justice Thomas, who twice has voted to say there's real problems with this this law, it's unconstitutional, acknowledged that in this case, you know, when when there isn't standing for the participants, as as he and Justice Barrett and Justice Kavanaugh, et cetera, held, uh, you simply can't bring that case. So they they knew that this was not a case that was likely to affect Obamacare, but they they couldn't resist trying to do everything they could to distract from what I think was one of the most talented and outstanding Supreme Court nominees we've had, a highly accomplished woman who was knocking out of the park, and they just had to change the subject. No doubt about it. Carrie Severino weighing in on Amy Coney Barrett, her candidacy, when they said, if you put her on the bench, she's going to get rid of Obamacare, and they voted yesterday, I think, 7-2, to leave it because they said Texas had no standing to bring it. That's just one of the reasons we have Brian Rotella on. Uh, he's a healthcare expert, attorney, and founder of CEO and senior partner at Genco. Uh, Brian, welcome back. Were you surprised by the decision? Uh, well, hey, Brian, I was not surprised by the decision because let's be honest, the Supreme Court said we could write a book on near death experiences over Obamacare. They've tried to resuscitate this thing and make sure it doesn't go to the light now three times. So I don't know that any of us thought that this was going to turn out in a way that they were going to repeal Obamacare. What I was surprised by is what actually happened here. And I was listening to Kerry Severino in the lead-in. Yeah, remember the whole hype about uh, Justice Coney Barrett and that if you voted for Trump and Coney Barrett got on the court, all this health care was going to go away? That was extremely overhyped. She voted with the majority. So did Justice Kavanaugh. The only two who voted uh, or dissented were Justice Alito and Justice Gorsuch. And, Brian, what they dissented on was really the the whole issue of this. The the court ruled on this that they didn't have standing, that the states that brought this lawsuit did not have standing to bring it because they weren't harmed. Nobody got into whether it was constitutional or not, the individual mandate, whether it was legal or not, whether now that there's no tax, because remember the Trump Act, the Tax Act set the tax to zero, the individual mandate, Mm -hmm. they didn't go there. They just simply said these states weren't harmed. Now, you know how crazy and ridiculous it is? And that is what surprised me, that they literally said, hey, no Little League game. We think there might be rain tomorrow. The reason that this surprised me so much is 18 states who brought this case have had to play by the member essential health care benefits in Obamacare, including things like 
birth control and all the stuff, you know, men's health, prostate type stuff. They've had to provide that to millions of state employees because Obamacare has been in existence since 2010. Overseeing that for all of these state employees, how they don't have harm, I can't tell you how many lawsuits I've been a part of that have got through motions to dismiss with a lot less than that. That is the sole reason your audience needs to know why the court yesterday yesterday ruled the way they did and why Obamacare, I think, is now going to live forever. Probably. And now there's a big push to either get rid of it or improve it because obviously it's not hitting on all cylinders. The the deductibles are too high. Not Doctors don't want to take it. It always seems to be the last option. Some of the states never took their money because they don't want to be on the hook when the gov- federal government stops paying them. So we forgot Obamacare was unpopular for a reason, not for a political reason, but it wasn't that effective. Yeah, well, Brian, this is the thing that a lot of people aren't, don't know. What's happened over since 2013 to 2019, premiums have doubled in the individual market. Why aren't people feeling that and we don't have the rage we saw in 2016? The subsidies out of the federal coffers, the taxpayer Mm -hmm. dollars, are matching dollar for dollar. So what is happening through Obamacare is what the Democrats have been asking for, a complete takeover of the government in our health care system and taking the employer-run, employee-paid, where we share contributions-run health care system we've had for how many years, away. Now the government is paying big health insurance companies. Now, I know there's some good health insurance companies right. out there, but I think the American people should know that's what's going on. And the reason you aren't hearing an outrage about this is these premiums are flying up, but people aren't feeling them because of the tax dollars going in for all these subsidies. Very interesting. So we have uh, this whole vaccine debate now. Do you want to go to a game? You got to get vaccinated. You want to get on a plane? Soon we're going to have to get vaccinated, perhaps. You got to go back to college. You got to vaccinate. You're an attorney, as, along with a healthcare expert. Do I have a leg to stand on if I want to go back to school and they say no, it's a private university, and I say I'm not comfortable with vaccines, and they say get comfortable? You, you do have a leg to stand on, but here's the problem. And there's, a, there's two things going on. You know there's a case down here in Florida with our cruise lines. There's a difference between when the CDC, what they're doing with our cruise lines down here, and DeSantis, our governor, is challenging it. The CDC is saying, no, you can't cruise unless you have 95% of folks vaccinated or you do some type of two-day uh, practice cruise. I don't know if it's like Gilligan's Island or something. The CDC is saying that. That is government overreach. I think that Santos is going to win that in our courts down here, Brian, because the government can't make those types of things. Now, I know that sounds crazy after what we've seen over the last 18 months. What you're talking about, though, with the schools or a private employer, private employers can require vaccinations. Now, here's the issue. What if I'm somebody who might have an allergy to a vaccination? What if I'm somebody who simply, if I'm concerned about taking the vaccine because I have some type of disability? Well, those are your legs to stand on as far as if you want to try to go to that school or you want to work for that particular employer. Or if you say, hey, I'm not allowed into this restaurant, but you're discriminating against me. What do I always talk about, Brian, and what worries me about this? What are we setting up? A trial lawyer feeding frenzy. Yep. Anybody out there, just Google COVID lawsuits because you know who the only folks who got immunity in this thing? Pharma, who? Pfizer, and Moderna. So if that Which is why they rushed it through and were willing to take yeah. the risk. So it, it's exactly. not, yeah. So, real, real quick, uh, on the cruise industry, 
Uh, where do we stand right now? Because obviously it means so much to Florida in particular and those different countries, especially international cruises, but uh, where the vaccine is being challenged. The president, the governor in your state wants people to make their own decisions. Yeah, well, I think we're going to, I think the governor's going to win because what's crazy, and, and I've said this recently, we've had Disney World open here in Florida since July. Now, anyone who's been to Disney World, you know, you, you with the masks on, you didn't have to have any vaccine. It's hot. It's humid. You're pulling on your mask. Nobody can tell me that that is more safe than being on a cruise out in open air um, where you're vaccinated. And the CDC saying this, I the you should, the Judge Mary Day here in, in, in the Middle District of Florida seemed very, very skeptical. I think that the state's going to win this here because this is clear government overreach. How can the government pick winners and losers, not even with between companies, but within a type of entertainment venue? When I mentioned Disney World, well, think about Disney Cruises. No one can get vaccinated who's under 12. Should the government be deciding if kids can go on cruises or not? Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, I want you to hear this Alita uh, Parasuk. Her, her son is being punished by West Point because he's not taking the vaccine. Uh, she feels helpless. Cut 39. He um, didn't want to take the vaccine, so he didn't take the vaccine. He has been tested at there on post and has antibodies. So he was counseled um, before he left West Point by his tactical officer who told him that um, because he'd chosen to exercise his right to not take the vaccine, that he would be called a susceptible status, he'd have a susceptible susceptible status, and that he would be have to submit to um, restriction of movement throughout the summer, which meant that he would have to give up some of his leave. So why is he put in that spot? Why do they have to make that choice? I can't believe this is West Point. Yeah, it, to me, this is... <laughs> We're going to have look back on this in 20 or 50 years, and it's going to look Orwellian. Well, he's this got antibodies. If you were his, if you were his, if he signed you and you were his uh, lawyer, what would you do? If I was his lawyer, I would be making the argument that, again, you just simply said he has the antibodies, and again, putting people through, and it gets into this whole emergency as compared to fully FDA approved thing with the vaccines. But he should have the choice. And is is COVID 19 at this point in history? In uh, June of 2021, is it that type of public threat that this person should have to take the vaccine to be able to go to West Point? We are not in March 2020. We are not in April 2020, Brian, anymore. And that's what I think the courts are going to start looking at very carefully. The numbers have changed dramatically, and the government strength needs to come out of this as if we're in the black plague. It cannot be played that way anymore, and you're going to start hearing a lot of lawyers arguing that, I hope. Yeah. Uh, here's another parent of West Point. Cut 40. I don't understand what the leadership at West Point is doing right now. Um, <clears throat> so quick, quick thing on my daughter. She loves the Lord. She loves her country. And all she wants to do, her dream, is just to serve both at West Point right now. She is in a position where she's had COVID. Uh, she recovered from COVID. She has the antibodies for COVID. And West Point is putting a ridiculous amount of pressure on her to take the vaccine for COVID. Your thoughts? Basically, I repeated what I just said, but I agree completely. They have the antibodies, and it's June of 2021. I mean, again, I'm not the scientist, but if I put experts on the stand, I think you're going to have a compelling argument that she's every bit as immune as somebody who has the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine. Plus, you're not putting them at risk of some of these potential side effects. And again, I'm pro-vaccine. I'm vaccinated. But 
making that argument this yep. person can't go to West Point when they have the antibodies in June of 2021, that to me is going to be what the courts are going to have to look at. Where are we now and what is the science now as compared to March 2020? Yeah, uh, we'll see how this uh, all turns out. Uh, Brian Rotella, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Brian. All right, attorney, founder of CEO, a senior partner of Genco. When we come back, Lee Habib joins us. Uh, the executive producer of The Streets Were My Father, a story of hopelessness and redemption. Great Father's Day story. Lee's next. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. In my teen years, I pretty much joined a gang, you know, and what attracted me to the gang was actually just the unity. We all had something in common. A lot of us were miserable. We had uh, no fathers in our lives. And so it's like a pack of dogs, you know, they, we, we hung together and we clung together. And I'll tell you one thing, when I joined the gang, the gang already had its problems. And it's like I inherited its problems. All the beef that we had with other gangs, I can't even tell you why. I just joined it. That's the funny thing about gangs. It's like no one knows why they're truly fighting. That is unbelievable, but it's so appropriate because uh, this name of uh, the name of our next guest is Ali Habib, and uh, he's the executive producer of The Streets Where My Father: A Story of Hopelessness and Redemption. And the numbers, Lee, really are astounding that you even have in your press release about fatherlessness uh, as his Father's Day weekend approaches. Uh, reports of a staggering 43% of U.S. children live without a father in their home. 85% of youths in prison, fatherless. 90% of homeless and runaway children are fatherless homes. I guess what you're finding out is dads matter. What about for you? What a crazy idea. I can't imagine my life without my father. Actually, we did some man-on-the-street interviews. What would your life be without your father? Some people just broke down and cried because they said, I couldn't imagine it. My dad was the best. But we also got a bunch of people who said, Father, what father? They broke down and cried. And that's what's so interesting, Brian. Father's Day is one of those strange days. Half the country, or, or roughly half, celebrates it. But another half, they didn't have good memories of their father. And that's what this, that's what this story is about, that there's hope for people without fathers. And there's a, there are remarkable things that happen to people without fathers with the right, with the right fellowship, with the right mentorship, with the right, with the right discipleship. So uh, what made you, what prompted you to do this? You know, we do a nationally syndicated storytelling show, Brian, and we do Father's Day. And we bumped into these three stories from a guy in Chicago who's a writer. And he wrote about these three men who had been in prison, had been in hardened gangs, one Latino, one half white and black and one black, been in and out of prison for 15 or 20 years. But suddenly they met this guy, Manny Mill, who ran a place called Conania House. And he had met Chuck Colson. And you know Chuck Colson's story, and probably your audience does, but he was a Watergate felon who ended up changing his life, and prison ministry became Chuck Colson's entire life. These three hardened criminals ultimately find God in prison, and they all said the same thing. It was the father I never knew. Moreover, they, they reshaped and remapped their hearts. Mm -hmm. And when they got out to 10 years down the road as we interviewed these guys, not one of them has recidivated. Not one of them is committed to crime, and two of them are fathers now. So two of them broke the cycle of fatherlessness. And one guy, Carlos Colon, who you just heard from, his father didn't have his father, and his father's father didn't have a father. 
So finally, Carlos has broken the cycle. He's a father to his son. So he breaks the cycle, but what's right now is broken is the family, especially on these inner cities. That's pretty consistent. But you can't say that, even though there might be generations who don't have a dad in the house and they don't seem to be getting anywhere uh, in the welfare state. You can't bring up. Well, maybe the point part, uh, the point is there's no family. Yeah, and Brian, we bring it up, but we bring it up with a solution. Because if you just bring it up and you just say it's the family, but you're not there to help, well, you know, so what, right? I mean, we know that liberalism and the progressive movement in the 60s created this breakdown, not just in the black family, but increasingly in the white family and the Latino family. The answer in the end, and this is so often the case in America, is our churches. And so many churches, Brian, are doing this work. They're putting bodies on boys stopping them from going to prison, and even the ones that go to prison, they know they're coming out. And so this is a movie that says, my goodness, we're the answer. I mean, conservatives have always said the power of the church to change lives, the power of families to affect other families. And so liberalism may have caused this problem, but it's us, and particularly church people, who are solving the problem. And that's why we wanted to do this film. This kind of good news doesn't crowd enough. And if we can inspire other churches to do this kind of work, like Lifeway Church in, in Lifeway Church in Dallas, Brian, has, has built three churches inside prisons. And once every month, the parishioners in those suburban churches go into those prisons and do church there. What a beautiful story. And by the way, what a way to recruit more church members. That is a beautiful church that does that kind of work. You know, when you hear about Chicago, you hear about this violence, you always say, you know, you always say well, you know, we, we see the numbers, we don't know the people. If somebody gets shot in a different location, you know about the people, you know about their family. And part of it is it's gang warfare. So they're just killing each other. And gangs is so easy. It's such a natural substitute for the family, correct? A dysfunctional one, but a substitute. It's a total substitute, and it does all the things a a father would do, including protection. And what are these young men getting protected from? The other gangs. And so that's the reason they join for camaraderie and for protection and for adventure. And they get all three until one day they're in jail. And at some point in time, many of them are ready to be changed. They're at that point where they go, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm 30, but there's no one to help them. And the government can't help these guys. We can. The government can't help these guys, but we can. You know, it's interesting. Mayor Bloomberg had a program about 60. He's had so many terms here, but he went crazy on the on mentorship. Is it possible for a mentor to, to play a, a, a significant role? Oh, my good, Brian, I'm in my own life, and not just one mentor. The key is it's a church, right? Because if, if you bring a kid into a church and a church family, then there's a bunch of men around them. And then it's not any one man's responsibility, but this kid's now getting cues and positive cues from a bunch of strangers who now love him. I've personally seen this happen in our own church through prison outreach and through fellowship and community outreach. We call principals regularly of high schools and say, hey, Do you know somebody in the seventh or eighth grade who's turning has a problem? We want to put some male bodies on them. Look, I've seen this happen again and again. Regrettably, in the news cycle, we tend to focus on what's not working, but we're not talking about what does work. And look, McDonald's has built a huge operation from simply sharing around the country how to do a hamburger right. So we can learn from each other in church. Hey, Lee, where do we get the movie? SalemNow.com, the streets were my father. SalemNow.com. Happy Father's Day, Lee Habib. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, 1-866-408-7669. Coming to you from New York, heard around the country, heard around the world. Two of your favorite Fox guys, Geraldo and Chris Wallace, this hour. And, of course, we're uh, we're also available on podcasts. You go to BrianKilmeadeShow.com. Uh, this way you could do it on your time. But right now we're live riding the breaking news as we have all week. It's been a wild week. I mean, the president over at the G7, then to the NATO summit, then over to the Putin summit. Prior to that, you had the vice president uh, uh, falling flat on her face uh, in Mexico as well as Guatemala. And now we have her back avoiding the number one topic in America, what it should be, and that is immigration. So there's a lot breaking today. So, And, of course, it's going to be a big legislative week next week to see if the filibuster actually survives. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. I was surprised to hear you come out and endorse Senator Manchin's legislation. Tell me about that. I am endorsing the fact that we now have a list of priorities and that Joe Manchin is at the table and he's part of the conversation. It's an important step forward as we try to protect the freedom to vote. Stacey Abrams on board with Joe Manchin. Scary combination. Yes, Joe Manchin has put forward his changes that he would put to H.R. 1, an extremist voting uh, measure that would change, would nationalize elections. It's about 900 to 1,000 pages. And Joe Manchin put some things on paper that he doesn't like and does like. And Stacey Abrams like what she reads. Is this the beginning of the end for the filibuster and more? Number two. One of the greatest things that President Trump did for this country was shutting down asylum fraud categorically. What Merrick Garland has done here is extreme. And it means there will be more fraud than you can possibly imagine because there's no way to disprove a claim of being afraid of violence. Stephen Miller is right. They have no answers. Biden, who has no answers for the relentless raid on our southern border and new rules will only make things worse. Uh, while they think they are gaining because the illegals uh, allowed in will eventually vote for them, I think it's going to be the opposite. Number one. So when you talk about critical race theory, which is pretty much going to be teaching kids how to hate each other, you're going to deliberately teach kids this white kid right here got it better than you because he white? You're going to personally tell a white kid, oh, the black people are all down and suppressed. How do I have two medical degrees if I'm sitting here oppressed? Well, how did I get where I am right now? Uh, that is Ty Smith. An outstanding host, uh, radio talk show host, who is uh, tackling uh, critical race theory, race in America. President Biden made Juneteenth an official holiday as the movement against critical race theory gets stronger by the day. I'll explain why, even though things aren't perfect today, we have come a long way and why America continues to be the greatest country in the world. Uh, Joining us now is Geraldo Rivera. Geraldo, I imagine you support Juneteenth becoming a holiday, right? Uh, why not? Uh, I I think that uh, holidays, first of all, the problem with these kinds of holidays is that they are and soon become day off, days off. So if, if government workers, state, local, federal government workers get the day off, it's less work they do for us. Uh, I, I, I think that the 
you know, that that when you see it in the cold reality that it is a day off and that no one or few people will be thinking of the origin, I think it's too bad. I think that like Memorial Day and that weekend, we have to consistently try to bring people back to what the holiday was supposed to be about. And Memorial Day to commemorate the GIs who've fallen in combat. Uh, for Juneteenth to commemorate the end of slavery. If that message and that lesson and that reminder become in the forefront, I'm all for it. If it's just another government day off, uh, you know, I, I just you know. yeah, Yeah, we're up to 41 of uh, the uh, government days off. I know what you're saying. I remember Jimmy Breslin, a guy you probably knew personally. He yes, said uh, this whole Martin Luther King thing was a big it was controversial. People like John McCain were not for it for that very reason. We have enough days off. He later will apologize for that. He said people who knew Martin Luther King, would, and if he was around, he'd want you to go to school twice. The last thing he wants is a day off. He, he was all about education. So I get it. You want to commemorate. But I thought it was amazing. They do this holiday. It's supposed to be tomorrow. They say the holiday passes Thursday. You're off tomorrow. And that screws up things like emergency meetings about the uh, the blood clots that might be going on with young kids when it comes to this vaccine that was supposed to be an emergency meeting today, they got to put it off till Tuesday now. I think the last thing we need is more holidays for our public employees. Let me say that. But I also think that people should be reminded of our history. All, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, Brian. True. So I was, I've been amazed at some things, many people of which you know. Uh, celebrities have come out of late from uh, Kevin Hart to Bill Moore and are just really concerned. And we have Joe Rogan, of course, his number one podcaster in the world, coming out to saying, and I don't think they're Republicans. I don't really think Joe Rogan is. Listen to him a lot. He's just amazed at the cancel culture and how you even get by like this. And then when Bill Maher has a monologue a week, and I agree with 90 percent of it, we're in a unique place in this country. Listen to him and tell me if you agree with me that he is on the money. Cut 53. Uncle Joe is pointing liberals towards something they need to be more aware of. They have a bad case of progressophobia. That's the phrase coined by Steven Pinker to describe a brain disorder that strikes liberals and makes them incapable of recognizing progress. It's like situational blindness, only what you can't see is that your dorm in 2021 is better than the South before the Civil War. If you think America is more racist now than ever, more sexist than before women could vote, you have progressophobia. And should adjust your mask because it's covering your eyes. And, and that is, is he's the utter definition of a liberal. Uh, I, I don't I think he is very uh, ra- radically progressive in, in many areas, but he's spot on on this issue. And the interesting thing about Bill Maher is that he is cancel proof. He can say almost oh, yep. anything. I agree. Because he's been around so long, he's already been fired once by a network. His ratings are still through the roof on HBO now. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've done his show. I, I can't say that I personally like him because he hated Trump so much. But he is spot on in this case. And I think that in some ways I have the same kind of immunity. I've been around so long. What are they going to do, fire me? You know, I'm almost 78 years old. About time. <laughs> Right. A good point. So we're, we're talking about critical race theory and uh, I have no problem. I can remember back. I was just always into social studies. I remember 
Oh, we were talking about race, black and white uh, bathrooms. We were talking about the race uh, riots that were taking place in the 60s. We knew about the Civil War, the black codes that followed Jim Crow that took place, how Abraham Lincoln's death really stopped the reforms from taking place that they should have after the Civil War. I remember Roots when it was on, the number one miniseries in history. That talked about America, warts and all, slavery, and the evil in which it was. We never ran from it. And tell me if you if you could sign on to this. In the 60s, it seems we were trying to make sure everyone was equal. I think now in 2020, we're trying to make sure whites know that they're evil and that they are the problem. Rather than trying to lift all up and finish the job, we are trying to point fingers and blame. That's what I think the problem is here, why we can't see progress because we don't see progress. Well, also, you have the situation where lack of progress or or uh, the the lingering the legacy of the bitter legacy of of slavery and jim crow and racism and so forth what we don't get is how far we have come and the need for patience in soothing and convincing people like the turnout for barack obama in 2008 uh, it, it was a such a big deal uh, that people forget how here we elected the first black man ever uh, to that high office and did it with a very impressive margin that swept all segments of American society and bathed us for a short time in optimism about race relations. But we are capable of doing great things. We are in many respects colorblind. You're seeing more and more uh, you know, entrepreneurs and, and yeah. enterprisers of all races and, and creeds and colors. You point to the illegals, and I heard your tease where you said that the uh, illegal uh, immigrants are going to come over here and they're going to vote for these Democrats that have destroyed our immigration, uh, uh, our structure. Yeah. I disagree with you. If you go to McAllen, Texas, in the Rio Grande Valley, and you see those 100% Mexican-Americans voting for Republicans, now a Republican mayor and, and Congress people, Latinos, as Ronald Reagan said, are born Republican. They're enterprisers. They're faith-based. They're family-oriented. The Republican Party has to compete for them. It's happening in the Rio Grande Valley the way it's happening in Florida. That's I have great confidence as a Republican and as a proud Latino, I have great confidence that we can compete against the Mishimashi Democrats who are dismantling many of the, uh, the, the apparatus of, of, of structures like the immigration system. Republicans can compete successfully against that, just as we can compete successfully against the the, the Squishy, right. squashy liberals in colleges and, and high schools that are trying to tell children that the races should hate each other. God, no, no, I think I should have been clearer then. I said Democrats feel as though they're going to be their voters. I feel differently, which is basically what you just said. Exactly. But you have the credibility with the additional with being with the Hispanic background. But I'm going to add I'm going to add something to this. I think that you always are big into movements and I don't see the big picture oftentimes 
uh, on purpose. I'm, I'm so into the play-by-play. But I think as a country, we have to stop looking at Barack Obama as a black president and the vice president as a, a woman of color and uh, the, the first Italian mayor, uh, the first Catholic since John F. Kennedy. We keep on trying to divide ourselves by defining ourselves. We used to be much more holistic and unifying. Every once in a while you go, hey, what are you? I am Italian-Irish. Oh, go celebrate St. Patrick's Day. Now I'm defined by Italian and Irish. Not as much as somebody who's black or white or a woman of color or Hispanic. We are so into labels now. How could we possibly get together if this continues? All I know is that you're from Massapequa. Thank you. That's, that's, that's your that's your. Burden. That's your <laughs> And by the way, that's a town on Long Island. Uh, if people and are listening outside seventy seven W Al's Midwell Diner on Broadway in Massapequa. Uh, you know, I I I believe that the celebration of achievements like the first black president or the first black uh, uh, or woman of color in the, the vice presidency, I think those are great landmarks. And I, I disagree. I, I don't think that that separates us. I think that that celebrates us. And it's proof that the critical race theory proponents are wrong, that their, their line of misery and division uh, and and uh, and race hatred right. is is wrong. They're going to lose. They're going to lose. But the way they lose is when you have candidates, uh, you know, that that come from groups that are that are uh, previously disenfranchised or marginalized. When you have them come to the foreground, that's that's terrific. I love that New York has you know Andrew Yang running and Eric Adams, uh, uh, the front runner right now. And Maya Wiley, even though I, I desperately disagree with everything she says, I. I love uh, Curtis Lewa. I love that uh, you know these folks are 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 running and 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 the city. You know, all cities now so, are going to so be here's, minority. So here's where we are. differ. Here's where we differ. I care about Eric Adams because he was a cop. I care about Andrew Yang because he was self-made success story. Uh, the other woman uh, who got the AOC Maya endorsement, Wiley. Maya Wiley. Uh, I think oh, no, she the came. NY, the, yeah, she came from one of the uh, boroughs here in New York. So I liked where people came from. But once you're here and you establish yourself, you're an American. So if you want to say, oh, yeah, I'm working class, I can appreciate I'd love to have a president that, that did that. That was like Trump had an aspect of it. Trump was, I, I loved his nationalism. I was all yeah. for yeah. it. But it could have been more inclusive. Uh, he tried, he was kind of clumsy at it. Uh, but uh, it, uh, at least he tried. Like, uh, uh, Pastor Scott, Daryl Scott, uh, here in Cleveland, an associate of mine on the radio show, uh, you know, he, he was one of Trump's key aides. But Trump could have done a lot more in terms of, come on, gang, uh, the black ones and the white ones and the, and the yellow ones and the red That's ones. That's the problem. What you just said, you, we can't do anymore. We can't do it anymore. Let's just, Americans, we want to teach you how to move up, go to the best colleges, work hard. Dig into our past, examine it, study it, decide what you want to be. You're a capitalist American uh, fighting for our country in any way you can. And I think we have to move away from where you're from and what color you are and the one gender awkward, you are. One awkward uh, – I, I know you're time-pressed, but yeah. one awkward uh, move by President Biden I think ultimately will be considered uh, you know, uh, as prophecy. He said – 
we're getting there. We're getting to the world that you, Brian, have described. We are, we are American. We're all in this together. He said, just look at commercials. Uh, this is Biden last week. Just look at the commercials. Now you can't look at a commercial where you don't have a same-sex marriage or a, a mixed marriage, racially mixed marriage in the commercial yep. where it's a white husband and a black wife or the other way around uh, or to two gay guys or uh, gay you. women. Uh, you know, and he's right. You can't and, – and I think that that, that is going to be like the – that's evidence of the, of the concept that there. you extol coming true. I hear you. you. Know, forget about the politicians. We'll, we'll, the society will, will, will blend us more than separate us. Absolutely. Uh, Geraldo Rivera, thanks so much. We just solved the world's problems in about 12 okay. minutes. <laughs> well done. <laughs> All right. Good job, Geraldo. Have a great weekend. one 408 7669 The bottom of the hour, welcome in Chris Wallace, then you. Both sides, all opinions. It's Brian Kilmeade. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. You know, it's soccer, though, Harold. They don't deserve trophies. <laughs> oh, Greg. Kilmeade is going to hate you. <laughs> I said one thing about soccer one time. He didn't invite me on his radio show for two years. <laughs> guy is so sensitive. What is going on? I mean, I, I, have, I have nothing to do with that. He's never available. Everyone's obsessed with you. But I, but I do have this to say. I, I could not believe the last time there was a World Cup, there were producers here saying, uh, that's, a, uh, that's the world's game. That's a European game. I, I don't, you know, we're, no one's into soccer. I, I was like, what, what year is this? Everybody's into soccer. Even what I found amazing about soccer today, and you hadn't asked, but I'm telling you anyway, is that people watch who don't play. For the longest time, the only people who watch soccer played. I'm looking at these people that obviously never played before, and they're into the international game more than the MLS. But the MLS now has, I think, 36 teams. They just rolled out an Austin team. They uh, rolled out a Minnesota team a couple of years ago. I mean, the St. Louis. Uh, you got to ask, uh, ask our station uh, – uh, in St. Louis, everyone t- goes to those games. It's a huge soccer hotbed. So why do you think people watch when they didn't play themselves? Yeah, so that's just it. You need non-fans. Like, for example, you go to if you go to a football game, maybe 10% of those people in the stands played any type of football. And I think over 50% of football fans, NFL fans, are women. There's really no women's football. There's, like, a few small leagues. That's what you need for a s- sport to make it. And the other thing, in this time, uh, this time in which we're trying to be unifying— Every nationality plays soccer, and minorities uh, play soccer. So it is a politically correct game, and it's great for sponsors. Oh, that is true. Well, that's what you said, right? Playing in college, it was like, you know, your world education. Yeah, they would say, okay, the three Americans, you're on that team. The four Americans, you're on that team. That's a little bit the way my my school recruited, though. In Division II, you could be a 25-year-old freshman, so you would have guys who are shaving. I don't even know how to use a razor. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Radio that makes you think. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. 
And now it's time to clear the airwaves for the acclaimed host of Fox News Sunday. Brian Kilmeade is the number four talk radio personality in America. Oh, thanks for bringing that up. Why, yes, Brian Kilmeade is in fact ranked the number four talk radio host on Talkers Magazine's Heavy 100. The show is everybody is. No, it's you. You call it the Brian Kilmeade Show. You've turned on your staff. It's all you. The eternal stalwart of morale for the Brian Kilmeade Show. You should be number one. I can't be number one. Get the negativity out of here. Wallace is on the clock. Wait a minute. That's a positive attitude. I can't be number one. The envoy of encouragement. The master of motivation. We've put that on your tombstone. Here lies Brian Kilmeade. I can't be number one. (laughs) That is true. Chris Wallace. Chris, that was a masterpiece, wasn't it? It was a masterpiece, but again, I don't, I, you know, I think your staff, if you don't realize it, everybody else does. What? This is not positive to you. You're, you're basically <laughs> saying, I mean, it would be like a crowd in a stadium chanting, we're number four. We're number four. <laughs> it's pathetic. Well, You've got to be number one. I know, but uh, you have Sean Hannity. You have Mark Levin, Dave oh, Ramsey. Who's, who's, who are they, for God's sakes? You're Brian Kilmeade. You've got me on. We, 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 you, with an occasional boost from me, should be number one. And that's, that should be the bottom line. You don't settle for anything less. Wow. I feel like I suddenly have a Vince Lombardi figure in my life. Exactly. What, what, what did he say? Being number four isn't the only, isn't everything, it's the only thing? No, he said winning. Can I just bring up when he first took over the team, they, uh, the, he made the Packers 500. Uh, they were 500. So they couldn't win everything right away. And to your point against me is I've been doing this now for over 10 years, so it's not exactly right away. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I think that's true. Right. I, think that's, I think that's true. No, we, we are not settling. I'm just saying this now. It's the official statement, and I'd like everybody to mark it. We are not settling for number four. We are knocking off Mark Levin. We're knocking off Sean Hannity. We're knocking off whoever is number three. We are going to be number one. I don't think so, but I mean, I'll go along with it. I just, <laughs> I'm going to try. I don't think so. I'm listen. Again. I'm just. It's Dave Ramsey, the other. I mean, these guys. These guys are. I mean, they're going right at, as soon as they're done with their shows. They go right to the Hall of Fame and they check the, check on their bust. That's how good they are. Listen, when Rush Limbaugh was yes. alive, I would say, okay, two is good enough. But with this group, you should be number one. All right, and but with you know, my help. Young man, you are going to be number one. Can I just say that Sean Hannity could be listening and this could cause tension at the Christmas party? Um, yeah, but what the heck? You know, <laughs> he's, I hope he has a sense of humor about all this. But I'm, I'm serious. Look, if I were on his show, I would give him the same pep talk. We're not, we're not settling for number four. We are number, we're going to be number one. All right, and Chris. I will do my own little small part, but you got to stop turning on the staff. God, you <laughs> well, they just clearly turned on me. Chris, what does Father's Day mean to you? I mean, do you think about your dad, or you think about your kids, or do you think about both? Yeah, I think about it. I think about all of it. You know, uh, I suspect it, you'd have to say mothers are more important in parenting than fathers are, but we 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 do an important job, and you know, we do a lot in bringing our kids up and maybe not quite as gentle to them and a little bit of uh, tougher love. But my wife, Lorraine, is a complete pushover with her kids. If I didn't, if I didn't occasionally put some discipline in, right. they, they, they would be a mess. I don't know if that's true in the 
Kilmeade family. But <laughs> although I, with you, you're just such an absent father because you're on TV and radio <laughs> all the time. <laughs> Do they get scared, some of the kids, when you come in? Like, Mom, who's that guy? Who's that? Oh, it's your father. Uh, no, they don't get scared. Uh, what happens is when you host a morning show, you could actually pick your kids up from school uh, and coach your teams because – I'm up at you know three. The the whole I've been doing seven o'clock all week. You've been watching. I know I'm getting all your tweets and your texts of of, of support. But I've been doing that. That's tough. But they're a little bit older now. Let me ask you this: How important is it? I can tell you how important it is with us. But how important is it for you to back up your wife and not take your kid's side in case of conflict? Even though in your heart sometimes you might think to yourself, I understand. I I kind of agree with the kids on this one. That isn't the way it works in our household. I I. And I'm no tough guy, but I tend to be uh, more the disciplinarian, and then they go to their mother and just go around me. So so in our household, I, it's not me taking my kid's side. It's Lorraine taking the kid's side against me. How about in your family? Well, no, I, I, we always have to have a unified force. And then, you know, later it's like, hey, by the way um, – you know, if, if one thought the other one was right or wrong, they might say, listen, maybe you don't know this. You never in front of the kids show weakness. Right. Oh, no, we used to fight in front of the kids. Uh, it was uh, I mean, they're all my kids are all grown up now. I mean, my youngest is 31. I, now it's the grandkids. And as far as the grandkids are concerned, I just spoil them rotten. Whatever they want. I don't I don't ever get between them. And I love telling them stories about their individual, either father or mother, whichever was my kid, uh, how, how naughty they were and uh, how I used to discipline them, which yeah. I have to say they all they all love. I'm, I am. The most, dist- dist- uh, you know, um, destructive isn't the right word. <laughs> I, I, but I'm not. I'm not a helpful grandparent. I am just. I'm in it for just pure pandering. I just want them to love me. That's all I care about. Well, you know, By the way, Allison's taking notes. She's got uh, three kids under four, so she's doing that now. Chris, here's another serious question. Yes, sir. Would you be a better parent now? I know, and maybe you don't want to be. But would you be a better parent now, bringing up your kids, than you were in your 20s and 30s? Absolutely not. I actually have said that to Lorraine. Uh, you know, would you go back? And this was a second marriage. So when we got married, she was 38 years old, and we had four kids between the ages of 10 and 7, uh, two of hers, two of mine. And I say, you could go back and you could live the last 25 years, but you got to live the last 25 years. you got to try to blend the families and go to all the, you know, the, the, the soccer practices and ice skating lessons and all of that stuff. And we both say, hey, I absolutely would not go back and relive that. Even to get the 25 years back, there is a reason that people in their 60s and 70s do not have newborn or even eight-year-old kids. I couldn't do it again. I, I could. I, I never – like I always li- – I like the uh, the events. I like the whole uh, what does a fourth grader need? What does a seventh grader need? What does a ninth grader need? I always I kind of like that challenge every day. I'm not saying I always came up with the right answers, but I did not want that to end. Yeah, but how old are you? I am 57. Oh, you're much older than I thought you were, my gosh. But I was going to say. I know, so am I. I can't believe I said that out loud. Wait wait 15 years, and I promise you, you're not going to say I miss it. I probably would have missed it at 57. Uh, At 73, (laughs) I don't miss it. You know, people talked about being empty nesters. By the time, you know, between Lorraine and I, we had six kids, four of mine, two of hers. And by the time the last one left and they talked about empty nest syndrome, (laughs) empty nest syndrome was like a vacation. I couldn't have been happier when they were all gone.
But don't you don't you worry because you're out of control. You haven't heard from him in three days. My goodness, what's going on? I want to hope everything's all right. No. No, I figure if it's bad <laughs> enough, they'll call me. The the police will call me. Otherwise, you know, they're on their own. All right. No, I I'm, I I did my duty. I did my duty from the age of 27 till in my 60s. I'm uh, happily uh, detached. Rid of that. Right. Okay, let's talk about what you'd still do when you're still uh, you're still in the prime of your career, and that's interview people like Joe Manchin, which you did. So Joe Manchin was talking to No Labels, which is a moderate super PAC. Joe Lieberman is one of the co-founders, and he was talking to them in an open conversation, which he, I'm sure he never thought was going to get out. And here's what he said when asked about, is it true, Joe, that you're considering supporting a reduction on the filibuster from a necessary 60 votes to 55 Here's the audio. It's not great, but you can hear him. Cut nine. That's one of many good, uh, good suggestions I've had. I looked back in 19, I think it was 73 when it went from 67 votes to 60 votes. And also what was happening, what made them think that it needed to change. So I'm open to looking at it. I'm just not open to getting rid of the, of the filibuster. That's all. And uh, right now, 60 is where I'm planning my flag. Uh, but I'm, uh, as long as they know that I'm going to protect this filibuster, we're looking at good solutions. So people like me are looking at this and saying he's under so much pressure to bend. How soon until he breaks? You, you've just talked to him. What do you think? He's already talking about reducing it. Well, if you remember, I said I had a really good question for Joe Manchin. And the question I asked him was, if you just flatly say it's going to be 60 forever, you're not encouraging bipartisan negotiation. You're now encouraging the, the Republicans to st- stand firm at 60. And so, therefore, if you keep it more open, then you're encouraging it. And clearly, Senator Manchin has listened to me, has listened to what mm-hmm. I said, and he's now raising the possibility of maybe reducing it to 55. And I don't know whether he's going to reduce it or not, but i got to tell you, if I'm uh, Mitch McConnell, the head of the Republicans in the Senate— I now have got to think, well, gee, you know, I might not be able to maintain a filibuster and not lose five because there are five, you know, centrist Republicans who might jump ship. You think of Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins and uh, Mitt Romney and a couple of others on on specific issues. So uh, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens here. I do remember that question. I think that's a significant move on the part of. Uh, Joe Manchin, and I think it was solely because of my, the question that I asked him on Fox News Sunday recently. Well, that second part is going to be hard to prove, but I'm going to put Allison on that. Uh, so she's going to go out to West Virginia and walk the streets and see if everyone can back that and see if we can find another Manchin, because he's not talking to us for some reason. He used to come in. Come on, right, Allison? What's going on? Why doesn't he come on the show? We still ask regularly, but he, he politely declines and says, check back next week. Nice. Uh, it's really yeah, may hard. I tell you, yep. when they say check back next week, you know what that means? Forget it. <laughs> I, I, I get a bunch of those, too. I've got a bunch of people. You get people on your show I don't get. I get people on my show that you don't get. So that's good. Between us, we get everybody. So this week is going to be exciting uh, because next week we're going to find out. Because I mean this, too, because we're going to find out about H.R. 1 and we're going to find out about infrastructure because they put out a legitimate $925 billion proposal, bipartisan. They deliver uh, 11 Democrat, uh, Republicans, I believe. Joe Biden said it had promise before he left, and he hears good things from Ron Klain. So we'll see if they really want to do a deal. I think America needs to see a deal. 
I think they need to see some compromise. It'll make everyone's barbecue and Fourth of July better. We'll be debating deals instead of uh, standoffs and elections. And then Joe Manchin put together a memo. H.R. One's a joke. I think it would nationalize elections. I think that it's way over the top, and it's such so extreme. If they had 60 votes, they might have trouble passing it, let alone with just 51. So Joe Manchin did this. He, he says, this is my problem with H.R. 1, and here's what I like. He goes, I'm against no-excuse absentee balloting. He wants uh, to ban partisan gerrymandering. He's not for public financing of elections. No kidding. He wants voter ID, but he wants utility bills to be a good substitute or things like that. Manchin also proposes making Election Day a holiday. Not much problem there. 15 consecutive days nationwide of early voting, allowing for automatic registration through the DMV with the ability to opt out. And because of that, people like Stacey Abrams, not going to play the soundbite and lose up too much time, says, I'm, in, I'm endorsing what Manchin's proposing. Now, Bring me, bring me inside baseball. Tell me what that means for next week. Well, it's interesting. I thought, actually, on voting rights, Manchin came up with a pretty sensible thing. I think there were clearly some things in the – it's not just H.R. 1. It's now S. 1, the Senate bill called the For the People Act, that went way too far. One of them you just mentioned, which is public financing of congressional yep. elections. And he said, look, let's make this a voting rights bill, not a not – a, we're going to change everything about our electoral system bill. And it seemed to me he came up with a pretty sensible compromise. Um, you know, some things in there that, uh, that some people on the left aren't going to like, like voter ID. I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing to insist on. Uh, you know, we we have to have that when we not when you go to get on an airplane. You should be able to have it when you go vote. But Mitch McConnell, the top Republican, says no. I'm not going to go for the mansion stripped down bill. So now again, that raises the question. What's Manchin going to do? Because unless he changes the filibuster, and I think that's in the end, that's really what Biden and Schumer and some people in the Democratic Party are hoping for, is that eventually they let Manchin come up with his own solutions, which are somewhat more centrist. And then if the Republicans still play hard, hardball on that, that he says, uh, well, I am going to change the filibuster. I agree. It's going to be I don't know if it's going to be next week or not. Always bet the over in terms of when something's going to happen. It's always going to take longer. But I, whether it's next week or the week after, we're going to see uh, we're going to see something right. finally on what happens on voting rights and infrastructure, and it'll be very interesting. Yeah, I'm I'm up against the clock, but just on that, this is what Tom Cotton told me last night. He said, Brian, what you read to me, which I basically read the same thing to him last night. He said, I'm for it if my governor comes up with it. I don't want this being decided in Washington, and that's why it won't hold up in court. And he's right. You know, that's why we have different state, you know, different states decide how you vote in Oregon. It's nothing but mail-in. Now, all of a sudden, they got to change. So uh, and they have everyone has their own system. So he so Mitch McConnell is a non-starter. But I agree with something else you said. They Republicans have to show a sincerity then because if not, Joe Manchin has no cover. They'll turn around and go, Joe. You're pretending as if there's bipartisanship. They keep telling us over and over again they won't even come to the table on anything. Then he's got no cover. So Republicans got to show some sincerity, which I thought they did with the infrastructure uh, that Joe Manchin helped put together with people like Senator Portman and others. Final thought? Final thought. uh, On Fox News Sunday, we're going to have a top national security official from the Biden White House about the summit. Was it a success? Was it a disaster? The man who said it was a disaster, Lindsey Graham, is going to be on. But we're going to focus primarily with him because he's what part of this bipartisan group uh, that's trying to do an infrastructure plan. And finally, by the time we talk next week, 
I plan to be a guest on the number one radio talk show <laughs> in America, the Brian Kilmeade it's, Show. They don't rank until Chris next Wallace year. On, <laughs> no, no. Oh, okay. Well, all right. But but you know what? You, a, a trip of a thousand, as Confucius, who was on my show back about uh, 1000 AD, said, uh, a trip of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Countdown to Bin Laden, available for pre-order. Thanks, Chris. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. So when you talk about critical race theory, which is pretty much going to be teaching kids how to hate each other, how to dislike each other, that's pretty much what it's going to that's pretty much, I don't care what you say, it's pretty much what it's going to all come down to. You're going to deliberately teach kids, this white kid right here got it better than you because he white? You're going to purposely tell a white kid, oh, the black people are all down and suppressed. How do I have two medical degrees if I'm sitting here oppressed? Well, how did I get where I am right now if some white man kept me down? How am I now directing over folks that look just like you guys in this room right now? How? What, what, what kept me down? What oppressed me? I work for myself from off the streets to where I am right now. You're going to sit here and tell me this lie of critical race theory? And uh, that is Ty Smith, the radio talk show host. He's, as you know, he's uh, quite qualified and incensed about critical race theory. He's black. Uh, and he talks about growing up, have his mom work two jobs. And when he was, uh, he's on with Bill Hemmer right now, and he was just saying that this was my schedule in my teens to my early 20s. I would go to school until, uh, until 1 o'clock. Then I would go to track practice from 1 to 3. And then I would go to a furniture store, and I'd work till 11 o'clock at night, and then I would hit the books afterwards. And I would do that cycle for years until I got my degree. So he says, I find it hard to believe that white people are keeping me down. I just wouldn't hear of it. I don't hear of it. I don't relay it. And even he does not relay. uh, He doesn't relay that whole let any uh, critical race theory theory to his kids who are 17 and 19. He says they watch me. They know there are no excuses. You want something? Go after it. If it's not working, change what you're doing. Brian Kilmeade show. Watch me tonight at seven o'clock on primetime. Uh, we have a great roster. It's coming together. And keep it here. Brian Kilmeade Show. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, coming to you from New York, heard around the country, heard around the world. We appreciate you being here, especially in a busy week like this. We get closer and closer to opening, fully opening with this pandemic. I can't say it's the same for the rest of the world. You see the British going to delay a few weeks now. They're still worried about the Olympics in Japan. Stunned by that. We're trying to give out as uh, as many uh, vaccines as possible while still being wary of a variant that could be coming to our shores. But so far, so great for us. Um, by the way, we see it a lot. Nobody wants to hop on mass transit. Allison and I were just talking about this. So the roads are busier than ever uh, we got spoiled having nobody else driving. Uh, Michael Kay will be joining us, uh, esteemed uh, sportscaster, wrote a great book about his show Center Stage on uh, on Yes, the, the Yes Network. He's the Yankees play-by-play boy. So it was a triple play last night that, that made history. Michael called it. We'll talk about that as well as his great interviews. And also find out about this other controversial thing. Uh, that is the substance that pitchers are using is now banned uh, within the next 10 days and how the pitchers are fighting back. 
Pidgey, they, they say the substance is to grip the ball, to make it more controllable. No one's getting hit, so they're changing the game in the middle of the game. Is that okay? So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. I was surprised to hear you come out and endorse Senator Manchin's legislation. Tell me about that. I am endorsing the fact that we now have a list of priorities and that Joe Manchin is at the table and he's part of the conversation. It's an important step forward as we try to protect the freedom to vote. Uh, That is Stacey Abrams. And if you want to have a bipartisan piece of legislation... Don't put Stacey Abrams on it. She's very polarizing. Is Joe about to break? Yes, Joe Manchin has put forward changes to H.R. 1, the left-wing revamp of our voting system, and now he might be ready to join his party on the legislation. However, it won't pass without the filibuster being banned. Will he do it? Number two. One of the greatest things that President Trump did for this country was shutting down asylum fraud categorically. What Merrick Garland has done here is extreme. And it means there will be more fraud than you can possibly imagine because there's no way to disprove a claim of being afraid of violence. Refugee status has all changed, making it so much easier to come here. That's what Stephen Miller is referring to. They have no answers. Biden has no answers for the relentless raid on our southern border, and new rules will only make things worse. While they think they are gaining voters by letting illegals stay, I believe it'll be just the opposite eventually, and we'll explain. Number one. So when you talk about critical race theory, which is pretty much going to be teaching kids how to hate each other, you're going to deliberately teach kids this white kid right here got it better than you because he white? You're going to purposely tell a white kid, oh, the black people are all down and suppressed. How do I have two medical degrees if I'm sitting here oppressed? Well, how did I get where I am right now? Uh, that is Ty Smith, the radio talk show host and dad of uh, two, uh, uh, two sons, 17 and 19 years old, speaking out about the curriculum that's now infiltrating all of American cities, way too many anyway, race in America. President Biden makes Juneteenth an official federal holiday as the movement against critical race theory gets stronger by the day. I'll explain, even though the things aren't perfect today, how much progress we have made. So let's bring in Shannon Bream. You know about uh, her show, Fox News at Night. You also know about her book, The Women of the Bible Speak, The Wisdom of 16 Women and Their Lessons for Today. And Shannon's also got an expertise uh, in law and Supreme Court justice decisions. A whole bunch came down yesterday, Shannon. Everybody's talking about Obamacare, that they didn't even hear the case because they didn't think Texas had standing. Is this the last time we're going to hear about Obamacare in the courts, you think? You know, I don't doubt that there will be more challenges. I don't know that the Supreme Court's going to want to get involved for a millionth time. Uh, you know, they get thousands and thousands of appeals every year, and they only take a handful of cases based on that number. So I'm not sure they're going to want to wade into this again. I think they're sort of done. But again, as you said, so people understand, this 7-2 decision yesterday was on a technicality. It was on standing, meaning seven of them said these plaintiffs don't have an argument for coming in and bringing this case. So it wasn't on the merits. You know, the dissenters um, were pretty fed up, uh, Justice Alito and Justice Gorsuch. Um, you know, Justice Alito said, here we are again. It looks like this thing is on the ropes. And yet there's once again what he called, I think, an improbable rescue by this court. And he said, how can you say these states don't have standing? Because there are financial burdens that come along with the Affordable Care Act for each of these states. So two of the justices convinced there was a case there. But majority rule and seven said, get to stepping. So uh, I guess it, it's going to be that one ruling. The other ruling that stands out that I think uh, you were watching closely, personally and professionally, was what they decided with the Catholic Church as it has to do with adoption. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, this case out of Philadelphia, uh, there's a group there, Catholic Social Services, that has worked with the city uh, in a, a relationship where they would place kids who need somewhere to go with foster families. And the Catholic group did not place kids with same-sex couples. But here's the thing that people have to remember in this case. There was never a same-sex couple that came to Catholic Social Services, wanted to be foster parents, and were turned away. So this case came without that ever happening. Um, but what Philadelphia had said is, we're not going to work with you anymore because you won't place kids with same-sex couples. Um, you know, Catholic Social Services had said, if somebody comes to us and wants to be a part of this, we're happy to refer them to the dozens of other groups that do this and that work with all kinds of different families. And Catholic Social Services also said that they were happy to work with single people who identified as LGBTQ. It was the marriage issue for them um, that was one that they could not cross that line. So nine to nothing, the Supreme Court says, in this case, Philadelphia got it wrong. And you can't ask people to either violate the tenets of their faith or get out of the program. It doesn't work. It's a First Amendment violation. So it's not a Supreme Court case, but I think it's significant. I, I read Kimberly Strassel uh, to impress you and because she always makes sense. She writes mm-hmm. about this. Uh, remember one of the exec- millions of executive orders that Joe Biden signed is to stop drilling and exploring on federal land. A judge reversed that and said you can't do that. Would have mm-hmm. exhaled from Wyoming, exhaled from New Mexico and Texas and Oklahoma uh, and Nebraska just to start. And the, she writes that she believes that many more of his executive orders are vulnerable to challenges. Do you see it the same way? Yeah, I do. I think any executive order is vulnerable because it doesn't have the legislative backing. I mean, it's not an act of Congress, literally. And, and think about all of the legislative or the executive orders that President Trump had. The other side will immediately go to court over executive orders because they know it's sort of the weakest um, underpinning when, you know, it just comes from one person and it's it's not, um, you know, a legislative body that's passed it. So I do think, yeah, I mean, you've seen uh, Ken Paxton, the attorney general in Texas, has, has challenged numerous executive orders. It's just like under President Trump out in California, uh, Javier Becerra, who was then the AG out in California, sued them hundreds of times. Um, it's, a, it's a good strategy for states who don't agree with what the executive is doing. And depending on the judge that you get, you can have some success with it. So we see now uh, there's going to be a new, uh, new rule passing when it comes to immigration. They're doing it through executive fiat. That it looks like President Biden's going to say, and we had the attorney general state it, uh, essentially, that if you come here and you claim you have to run from asylum because your health or welfare is threatened, you get to stay. That is going to get the numbers flooding through our embassies and through our process. They're trying to loosen up the legal system, revamp uh, immigration on the fly. Uh, can this stand? I think that that's going to be very ripe for a legal challenge because we all agree, including Democrats that you hear from, I hear from, America hears from all the time, the situation at the border is untenable. These are human beings. These are children. These are lives that are being trafficked. The cartels are gaining ground. This is not a good situation. I don't care what your party is. I think most people can agree on that. And the polling shows Americans get that. They don't think that the border is being handled well. So if you're going to have you know, press conferences and say our messages do not come, we've heard that from Secretary Mayorkas, from President Biden, from Vice President Harris, but then you change policies so that what people hear is – you're not going to get turned away if you come here and make XYZ claim. Why in the world wouldn't they come here and make XYZ claim? Um, I think that's definitely going to end up in the courts very quickly. Well, very interesting. Here's Stephen Miller, uh, and he's exasperated. You've had him on before because he wrote a lot of these immigration reforms, cut three. It's hard to explain just how breathtakingly radical this is. One of the greatest things that President Trump did for this country 
was shutting down asylum fraud categorically. By the time the 2020 rolled around, asylum fraud was a thing of the past. It was done. What Merrick Garland has done here is extreme. It means that anyone in the world who comes from a high-crime country, which, by the way, is billions of people, or comes from a country where there's high rates of domestic abuse, a great tragedy, a terrible tragedy, but they can come to the United States and they can demand asylum, they can be admitted, and they can be made into a U.S. citizen. This completely destroys the integrity of our entire immigration system, and it means there will be more fraud than you can possibly imagine, because there's no way to disprove a claim of being afraid of violence. It's an unfalsifiable assertion, and it's an attack on the integrity of the entire asylum and immigration system. Uh, I mean, he just says it clear, and he's got an organization now. He's not a lawyer that sues on the behalf of conservative causes. I imagine he'll take this one on. Yeah, and I would think that Ken Paxton, again, you know, AG out of Texas and some of his um, cohorts over in Arizona, New Mexico, and other places, I think, are going to get involved in a lawsuit involving that as well. Because, listen, the best of America is that we are this beacon of hope. It is a place for people to come and be able to have a life and rebuild and escape terrible things. We want that. What I don't want is cases that have nothing to do with that or people who have bad intentions to say, hey, this is a great loophole for me. I'm just going to show up and make this claim. Um, I think that ends up hurting the process for people who legitimately need to claim asylum um, when you begin to doubt every claim, because there are so many of them, and it doesn't seem to be, um, uh, you know, there doesn't seem to be a good way to separate when you have this flood of numbers, um, go through each case and, and figure out who really needs to be here. So can you help me with sarcasm? I can. So, I, I don't think you need much help on that, though. You seem thank pretty deaf. <laughs> so, so I can't figure out if Vladimir Putin, Putin is being sarcastic. When asked about his summit with President Biden, he says this. Biden is a professional, and one should work, uh, should work very attentively with him to avoid missing any detail. I can say with certainty that he never misses a detail. This was absolutely obvious for me. He is fully in the know. He looked into those notes from time to time, but we all are doing this. The image of President Biden portrayed by our and even by the American media has nothing to do with the reality. So I don't know if it's tongue in cheek. He checked his notes. He is so in tune. He can't get past the detail. What do you think? I don't know. I wonder if something gets lost in translation, too. You know, you wonder, gosh, I would not want to be a translator for these two, because think about just the nuance and the, you know, when President Biden starts on something, then he changes his topic mid-thought, and he, you know, all these different things that he says and does. I'm just thinking about how does the translator put that back to Putin when he's like, uh, created equal, uh, you know, all over the place. I'm thinking, how does he do it so that it makes sense to Putin, although I think Putin understands English pretty well. Um, I just don't know what these two, I mean, that sounds so over the top in its praise of what President Biden has gotten criticized for, which is not being into the details or having any idea what's going on with some of these more complex issues. I don't know. Maybe they had a great connection behind closed doors. I think we all hope for that. But it does sound a little bit sassy. (laughs) Well, we're going to see what's going to happen in the next few weeks, because I just hope uh, some vital industries uh, are not left off the 16 things we asked him not to hack. One of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard in my life. Janet, just weigh in on this. I know you're a news person, but please tell me that that doesn't make any sense to you, does it? 
No, it makes it, it takes two seconds, by the way, to go to the list of the 16 things that are listed online on the government's website, this critical infrastructure website. I've had people ask me about it, and I tweeted them the link like, here you go, because I can't imagine a more crazy thing to do than to say these are the 16 things that would destroy our country if they were shut down. Here's the list. I mean, it, that makes zero sense to me. I gave I gave Vladimir the, the list and told him not to mess with these. I just don't – it makes no sense to me, unless there's some double reverse double dog psychology going on there i have no idea what that's about uh we're going to watch you tonight shannon uh at midnight are we going to see you any other time because i saw you filling in for brett this week yeah i'm filling in for martha today at three o'clock on the story three o'clock eastern we will see you then all right shannon bream thanks so much have a great weekend. All right. Uh, listen, uh, when we come back, I'll take your calls, and we're going to end with, with more to know. We also have Michael Cade coming up, New York Yankee broadcaster, host of Yes's Emmy Award-winning show called Center Stage. He's got a book out. We'll talk about everything that matters. Don't move. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Juneteenth marks both a long, hard night of slavery and subjugation and a promise of a brighter morning to come. This is a day of profound, in my view, profound weight and profound power. A day in which we remember the moral stain, the terrible toll that slavery took on the country and continues to take. Joe Biden making it official. We have a 41st holiday. It's Juneteenth, marking the time in which word got to Texas, release your slaves, the South has lost, and the Emancipation Proclamation will stick. Howard, listening uh, on on Coil in Nebraska, Omaha. Hey, Howard. Hey, Brian. Juneteenth. Emancipation is incredibly worthy, incredibly worthy of commemoration, but it's ground that should already be covered within Martin Luther King Day. Biden's virtue signaling is very expensive. And finally, my sister works for a federal agency. She reports that the so-called essential workers get an extra day's pay, and the state workers are off today also. They took off because tomorrow is the actual day, and it was signed yesterday. I've never seen anything like it. So uh, it's it's the day that's worth noting, absolutely, but it's another federal holiday. Uh, so there's 14 Republicans that didn't vote for it in the House. Brian, listening on Long Island. Hey, Brian. Hey, I, I don't know Vladimir uh, personally, but I see that he's had his reign for a pretty long time, and I and I know that he has a background in intelligence. Um, I'm I'm gonna say he the guy's a pretty smart man, um, and he sees that Biden is good for him. He sees that he can manipulate Biden. He sees that Biden's not gonna um, try to you know put any type of uh, you know hypothetical you know uh, handcuffs on him. Um, he's going to be able to roll Biden. And I think that that's what um, that whole conversation was about, that his statements about Biden being in charge of his faculties. Uh, I I think anything that that Putin says, you should probably think the opposite of what he's saying. Uh, But when he says that that Biden's in control of his faculties, I I think we should 
take the opposite from that. That's what I'm. That's what I'm getting to. Just tongue firmly in cheek. Brian, thanks. Here's Steve Hayes on special report last night. He looked at the whole trip. Uh, he does not like the images. Cut twenty seven. But I think the big mistake here was the, the meeting with Vladimir Putin. I mean, Vladimir Putin, meeting with Vladimir Putin itself, I think, was a mistake. You shouldn't be giving somebody who's acting like a rogue state, who's made very clear that he's an enemy, that kind of a platform. And if you look at what Russia has been doing in recent weeks and months, they are hostile. They are acting like a hostile power. There are military exercises. There's a ramped up disinformation campaign. There are the, the cyber hacks that uh, we talked about earlier in the show. There, of course, was the Solar Winds hack, which was attributed to Russian intelligence services, which had a cost of at least $100 billion to U.S. public and private sector entities. This is a bad guy doing bad things, and I think giving him that kind of a platform was a mistake. And guess what? Kim Jong-un has contacted the Biden administration, said he'd be open to a meeting. I don't think the Biden administration is jumping on it. I don't necessarily think it's bad talking to your enemies, but when you start off in 100 days, they've already hit to you twice. They've welled up troops at the Ukrainian border. You've already called them a murderer. They returned around our battleships out of the Black Sea because they told us to. So already we have a track record. It's not like the day after you're going to try another ill-advised reset. They're already acting out poorly. And if he, they go ahead back to those actions, back to the hacking, it'll truly embarrass President Biden, in a, time, in a time in which I don't think he can, he's already dropped six points. He won't recover. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Chop slowly. Oh, there's a situation at third. The throw is to first. Now they'll throw to second. Runners are hung up. They're going to come home with the throw. They have Simeon in a rundown. He's tagged out. Throw to third. It's a triple play. They pulled a triple play. Second one of the year, and this one falls under the heading of Funky. That was Michael K. Last night, he knew he was going to come on the show and wanted to be able to have a de- definitive call to help sell his book, Center Stage, My Most Fascinating Interviews. And the voice of the play-by-play, longtime voice of the New York Yankees on the Yes Network, joins us now when he's not doing his radio show or calling Yankee games. Uh, he's writing books and doing interviews on the Yes Network. Michael, welcome. Brian, I did that call for you. I hope you liked it. Yeah, I know. Special thanks to the Yankees for helping you out. That was interesting. You have to see how this thing unfolds. To see it on television was wild. Did you know what you were calling? Did you realize where this could be heading? Like, I don't even know what a play-by-play guy thinks in something like this, because isn't it the first time it's ever happened? Well, that that particular sequence is the first time it's yeah. ever happened in the history of baseball. And, and as you could tell when I sit slow rollers, there's a situation at third. So in the corner of my eye, I saw that both runners were at third base, and he threw to first. So I knew they'd get at least two. And this is like the second triple play they've had this year, Brian. And it's the first time in the history of the Yankees they've had two triple plays in one season. Incredible. And it's been one of those incredible years. Before we get to your book, just a a few things in the news. Tell us about what's going on with this substance, pitchers, and the pushback. They're allowed to use a substance, basically, that allows them to grip the ball better and possibly gives them an advantage to the point where nobody was hitting. So to the point where the commissioner acts. Tell everybody what's going on. Well, obviously, the first two months of baseball, Brian, 
it was not a good product. It was not a good product to watch. There was no hitting. There were so many strikeouts, strikeouts, walks, and occasional home run. There was no action on the bases at all. So when you look at it, you have to decide why. Well, one of the reasons is the way baseball is played now, they look for three true outcomes, home runs, walks, strikeouts. That's what the analytics people want. Also, pitching has gotten so good because the spin rate, it's almost impossible to hit. So the people that run baseball said this is not good for the game. There's no action in the game. Striking out is not action. And they looked into it, and the reason that pitchers are so unhittable now is they have such incredible spin rate. And the reason they have spin rate is because they use these substances that give them an unbelievable grip on the baseball so it stays on the hand longer, and they could put more rotations on the ball, which makes the ball stay on the same plane or have a big break if it's a breaking ball. So baseball and its infinite wisdom decided to have, well, let's do it cold turkey. Let's just do it after two and a half months of the season, and hopefully it will reignite the offense. And so far, it has. And people have been using stuff on baseballs forever, Brian. And the reason they do it, the initial reason, is just to get a grip because baseballs are very slick, and it's hard to get a grip on the baseball. But people that are smart then started to weaponize it, increase the stick, and when you weaponize it, you increase the spin rate, and that makes you a better pitcher. So long answer to your question, baseball just decided now they're not going to have anything to get a better grip on the ball other than rosin, including sunscreen. That's outlawed. And starting on Monday, anybody that's caught with it on their body or their belt or their hat, they will be suspended for 10 games. So we'll see if the union's going to step up and try to help the pitchers to a degree because they say they have to approach the game entirely different, including Garrett Cole, arguably the best pitcher in baseball. So it's a fascinating news story that's emerged that has people outside baseball world talking. So, Michael, let's talk about your world. Before we, we know you on television, I uh, heard you on the radio for years. You got your great radio show on ESPN Radio. But first off, you talk about growing up in New York, and you knew right away you weren't going to be a pro player. But what did you want to do? Well, when I was about nine years old, and we lived about, I'd say, 10, 15 minutes away from Yankee Stadium, I was obsessed with the Yankees. So, as you mentioned, I knew I couldn't play well enough because I was afraid of getting hit by the pitch. I said, I want to be involved some way. And I told my parents, you know what, I want to be the Yankee announcer. And they looked at me, and to their everlasting credit, they did not discourage me, but they always kept saying, you know, go for whatever you want, try, but remember, always have a fallback, have other things that you can do in case it can't happen, because they realized that the odds were astronomical, and 30 years now, I've been, you know, one of the, either the radio or television voice of the Yankees, so to say I'm fortunate would be an understatement. But you were a writer first. You always loved asking questions. You never uh, approached this job with, I know everything. You had the opposite approach. I want to learn everything. Yeah, I think, you know, the ability to have access to people and ask questions. I think my newspaper background has really helped me in broadcasting. You know, you should be curious because what you are is you're the eyes and the ears of the people that don't have the access. So you should ask the questions. I don't know. You know, why, you know, you can't hit a breaking ball. I don't know why you couldn't make that catch in right field. They could tell us. So you're a conduit to tell the people exactly what's going on in the field. And I think that's an important role. 
So, uh, Michael, you say you're very honest in the book. It's really it's excellent. Uh, most of the people I know and have had a chance to meet, but you bring a lot of uh, – when people sit down with you, as pointed out by Bob Costas in the forward, uh, people want to talk. It's almost, I'm here for therapy. I'm going to give you therapy. So you get – everybody is pretty much well-known, whether an actor or an athlete. And in some of the moments that you point out who decide to get in the book, you said you watch Howard Stern print some of his favorite interviews into a book, and you thought, I'm going to do that. Yeah, it happened through a, a real down – part of my career you know if i don't know if you remember brian two years ago i had vocal cord surgery i couldn't speak so i was off the air and i'm watching people do my job and getting depressed and i just read a lot i couldn't even talk to my kids or my wife so i just read and one of the books i read was howard stern comes again where he took little snippets of the interviews he's done over the years on radio and you know kind of explained uh, you know what was happening during those interviews i said you know what we've done a lot of really good interviews on center stage that be a good way to start a book and, and this book is different than Howard's is that we run the entire interview and then I lead into the interviews telling people how we got those guests how those guests interacted with people when they weren't on stage the backstory reading between the lines but uh, the inspiration for the book was a you know vocal cord surgery and Howard Stern very and it's real interesting so here's one of the moments from center stage which you could see on the yes network uh, where you know fans get to ask questions in front of a live audience. Here's Mike Tyson talking about his toughest opponent. Cut 45. Toughest fight you ever had? I don't know. Holyfield and Reader Ruddick. Favorite moment in your career? I don't know. Buster Douglas. Even though you lost? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Why? Why, Michael? Because he got it. He tried to get up. He, you know, it tested him. And and um, it's it's funny that you you play a snippet from that interview because I found this out about two weeks ago, so it's not even in the book. So Tyson goes on stage, Brian, and in that hour interview, he's crying, he's laughing, he goes between sad and happy. At times, I really thought he was going to hit me. The audience was on the edge of the seat. So then the show plays on Yes, and at the end of the show, Spike Lee was watching and calls up Mike Tyson and said, you see what you just did there? And he goes, yeah. He goes, that's a Broadway show. That's a one-man Broadway show, which I'm going to produce. And that turned out to be Mike Tyson on Broadway just because of that, that hour on center stage. And think about that. He's buried in debt. Uh, he's being honest about it. He's got a new wife. And between the discipline his wife gives and the relationship that they have, Spike Lee taking the initiative, I watched that at, at the Westbury Music Fair, and it was great. He was in middle of center stage. He had the earpiece. His wife would help him out and be like a good producer that we both have, give him some information to keep the story moving. And he told his great story. It was the beginning of the revamp of Mike Tyson. And now the guy's even boxing again. I mean, the, the excitement, Mike Tyson, exciting in the ring and out of the ring. I don't think we've seen anything like it. Yeah, it's an unbelievable story of redemption. You know, there were, there were times that he was a reviled human being. I mean, he was in jail for three years for rape. And, you know, he's completely reinvented himself. He's almost become lovable to some people. And he's like another guy in the book, Alex Rodriguez. You know, I, I, another story of redemption. You know, you hit rock bottom. Some people could choose to stay at rock bottom or climb their way out. And A-Rod's now become the face of baseball on Fox and ESPN. And Mike Tyson is this lovable person. So uh, I guess what this all tells you is you never really should count anybody out because everybody could rebound if they had the desire. You know, on the outside, people think we got it all together. You're rich, you're famous, you're successful, you have athletic success and maybe championships. But in A-Rod, you interviewed him when he was with the Rangers still, right? And yeah. you saw some vulnerability there. Obviously, uh, 
being a pro at 18, not going to the University of Miami. He, he talked about with you something I did not know, that he basically went to a hotel room, signed a pro contract, or else he was going to college and they would have had to wait three years. He never would have been in Seattle with Ken Griffey Jr. Yeah, it's an amazing story. He was actually walking on campus at the University of Miami, and this was before cell phones, Brian. So somebody had to run and get him because once he would step into a classroom, he would be ineligible to sign. That's how close it came. And then they dragged him to a hotel room and he signed the contract because the Mariners finally gave in and gave him the money that he wanted. But, you know, we, we actually put that interview in the book. It was done in 2003 because it does show you the vulnerability. And if you read between the lines, it kind of foreshadows some of the things that had happened to right. him. And, you know, he tells stories about how, you know, his mom and, and him used to sit on the edge of the bed and she'd come home from a long shift at a restaurant, they would count change, and that's how they would pay bills. And now this guy just spent $1.5 billion to buy the Minnesota Timberwolves. So it's an, it's an incredible life story, whether you like him or not. I mean, it's riveting what, what, what his life has become. It is true. And, of course, with uh, everyone's talking about J-Lo, that's what he mainstreamed. But he came, became a fantastic TV analyst, went from Fox to uh, ESPN. But Derek Jeter, during his playing days, was always the guy that he was never able to overshadow, despite his numbers many times, most times being better. Here's a great moment, you calling Derek Jeter's 3,000 hit, cut 47. Did you pre-think that? It's so brilliant. You let it breathe. Do you hear the crowd? I didn't pre-think it, but you're going to think I'm a little bit of a weirdo, Brian. I, I, before that, obviously, I slept the night before, and I had a dream that he was going to hit his 3,000 uh, hit as a home run. And in my dream, I'm announcing it. And in my dream, I said history with an exclamation point. So when I woke up, I just thought, well, that was a weird dream. And then it unfolds in front of me, and I never plan a call because I think you stumble over it when you plan it or write it ahead of time. And who could ever predict that he would hit a home run? And then when I see the ball going over the wall, it just came out of my mouth, history with an exclamation point. So kind of funky, kind of weird, but it did really happen. So I never had an interesting, uh, because I never broke through as friends with him that you probably did, but I never had an interesting conversation with Derek Jeter. He's always so guarded. Here's a moment him talking about himself uh, on your show in 2003 uh, about his parents. Cut 48. Is it true that you and your, your sister, Charlie, actually had to sign a contract each year? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I used to. I, I didn't like that too much. We sat down, and my, my parents used to make these contracts. Was this in January each year? This was right before school starts, so right at the end of the summer. Okay. And they'd map out everything. You got to get this grade. You got to make sure you're involved in these things in sports, and you can't play unless your grade point average is at this. And we had curfews, and what time? I always always try to negotiate the curfew. That's that's the only <laughs> thing I used to fight. But then we'd sign it at the before we went to school, and we'd have to stick to it. Describe the Derek Jeter you know. I mean, obviously, great parents and a great athlete leads to a great person and a Hall of Famer, now an owner of the Marlins. I think, you know, just in, in meeting people over the years, Brian, I'm sure that you've had the same experience. People really are a product of their upbringing. And, you know, if, if you're raised well, you're, you're probably going to turn out pretty well. Uh, and his parents are extraordinary people. And he mirrors them. And I just remember when he got drafted by the Yankees, 
Uh, he came to Yankee Stadium as an 18-year-old. He had his parents, and the, the manager of the Yankees at that time was Buck Showalter. And I asked Buck Showalter, I said, well, what do you think? He goes, well, I mean, the scouts say he's going to be a good player. I don't know. I've never seen him. I will tell you this. I said, what? He said, he will never in his life embarrass the New York Yankees. I said, well, how do you know that? He said, I've met the parents. He said, you are what your parents are. He, he said they will never allow their son to embarrass the Yankees. And as far as Derek, he's one guy that he was able to conquer New York, never embarrass himself, his family, his name, or the Yankees. I don't know how he did it. He obviously had an active social life. He never alienated anybody or made anybody angry. And the way he handled the media, I mean, it should be taught in journalism classes. I, I don't know how he did it. He never, ever said the wrong thing. And the best way I explain it, and I always use this, is that if you knocked on Derek Jeter's door, he would talk to you through the screen for three hours, but he would never ask you in the house. So he would give you just enough, but he's never, ever going to expose himself where it could hurt him. Right. I mean, you talk to the interesting people uh, in New York, and you don't make yourself the story. I think that's why Center Stage works and your book works. But you have uh, Jay-Z, Snoop Dogg, John McEnroe, Serena Williams, Larry David, Seth Meyers, Charles Barkley, all in this book. Uh, you chronicle the interviews. One of the most interesting things that people uh, kept getting in his own way his whole life, and I hope he turned the corner. My fingers are crossed is Doc Gooden. Despite the problems he's had since being a star at 19, and he still liked Tyson, very interesting interview. Uh, here's a little of the excerpt from 2016. Uh, this is uh, Cut 51. Did you ever think that using the drugs compromised your talents on the mound? I think it took a, took part. It definitely played a part. I don't think it was 100% it, but it definitely played a part because after a while, your work, habit, your, your work ethics change, um, your thinking or setting him up, everything starts changing. You're not aware of that. And the toll on your body for his bouncing back from injuries, your recovery period, because being a power pitcher, it takes a while a bit. You have to put an extra work, and then it starts changing. And then you know you can't use because they're testing you, so you drink more. So all these different things taking a toll, you're not aware. You're aware of it, but you're not aware of it. You're in denial, basically. So that's the type of intimate details you get uh, among the most well-known well names in the country. Michael, congratulations on everything. The best is yet to come on your career, your radio show, being the Yankees broadcaster, and now an author, Center Stage, my most fascinating interviews. It's excellent. Michael, thank you. Thank you so much, Brian. You've always been so kind. I appreciate your time. All right. I will see you hopefully at the stadium because we're allowed to go watch games again. Michael Kay, thank you. Back in a moment. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back. Just finishing up this hour. I hope everyone can watch tonight at uh, 7 o'clock. It'll be on primetime. But in the meantime, let's find out if there's more to know. More to know. Sponsored by Oxford Gold Group. Call today to learn how you can protect your retirement and savings account. 833-600-GOLD. That's 833-600-GOLD. So Congressman uh, Donald Payne Jr.'s stomach was on full display as his too-comfortable Captain America t-shirt gave way to a lot of skin when he rose from an unmade bed during the early morning hearings on Homeland Security uh, Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. It's such a joke that they are not in Washington now. They're just taking advantage of this remote voting. So this guy had a shirt out laying in bed. The video of Payne was not publicly broadcast and appears to have been visible only to participants in the virtual hearing. It's unclear if any House members were violated by this. Uh, the one tweet said, another reason Democrats should get off Zoom and back to work. That's Congresswoman Beth Van Dunn and Brian Mass. If taxpayers are paying you $174,000 a year, get out of bed. 100% right. 
Next, streaming passes broadcast. Nielsen has a new way to measure how many people are watching streaming video and how long. Hardware can now track streaming via the Internet routers. Why it matters? Streaming is exploding, but the industry has lacked a uniform way to measure. Now they do. It's called the gauge. Nielsen found that streaming takes up more than 26% of all TV consumption. This surprises me. Does it surprise you? Um, it doesn't, especially with young kids. I mean, you know, we're having, we're watching Netflix, Disney Plus, or something most of the time. Right. I mean, I still, they left the, they left the Apple TV on last night. Mm-hmm. I could not get it off the Apple TV to watch cable. <laughs> I had to go on Apple TV, click on the Fox app on uh, that. You might be showing your age. I think I am. See you tonight at seven. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.